Maybe it's great when you're introduced with, there'll be something for everyone. <laughs> so you think, well, no pressure there then. It's going to be fairly straightforward. Um, a couple of disclaimers at the start. Um, the first is um, we recognise that different people will be in different stages um, and will have different attitudes and different experiences uh, when it comes to the subjects of marriage. Um, some of us in the room are single, some of us uh, are married, some of us are divorced, some of us are bereaved, uh, some of us would like to be married, uh, some of us would never like to be married, uh, for a whole host of different reasons. Um, so that's the first disclaimer, just to recognise that we'll all be in different places and have different reactions when we hear that tonight's talk is about marriage. Some of us will think, oh, that's interesting, and some of us will thought, oh, rats, I should have gone to a different church tonight. Um, but wherever you are, hopefully, there will be something uh, where God will speak to you. Um, the second thing is, is that I don't claim uh, to be an expert um, uh, on marriage. Um, I've lived half my life single and half my life married. I worked out in the vestry that I've uh, been 27 years single and 28 years married. Um, but I do not claim uh, to be an expert on marriage. And uh, if at any point I um, appear to be an expert on marriage, Kathy, my wife, uh, will heckle. Uh, and she has promised to do so. And if you want to know how far short of the ideals that I'm talking about this evening, uh, then just go and chat to Kathy after this service, and she will tell you uh, that what I say is one thing and how I live uh, is something else. Um, but hopefully uh, she'll forgive me. Um, so in light of all that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of marriage, the gift of love that you give us as human beings. Thank you that we are not simply called to believe in a creed or a set of doctrinal statements, but you call us into a relationship and that you've made us as human beings to live in relationship, in relationship with you, but also in relationships with each other, whether it's friendships or whether it's marriage or whether it's parent-child. Father, whatever relationships we find ourselves in this evening, we pray that you might speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Whatever our attitude, whatever our experience of marriage, whether it's good or bad, we pray perhaps, Lord, for those um, who are struggling, uh, whether they're married or single, that you might restore hope. We pray that you might envision people, that you might bring healing for, for people who've had bad experiences. But whatever our experience or standpoint tonight, Father, would you meet us where we are and speak to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to begin by doing a sort of a quick recap on where we are in the sermon series so far, because we're about halfway through. Uh, we began by looking at Genesis chapter 2, and where in that story of creation... Um, God, uh, on different time periods, whether they were literal days or not, at this time it isn't actually important, but God looked at different things that he'd made. He said that it was good, 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 very good when he made humanity. But then God looked again and said, God, it's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. So he made humanity, which was very good, but then he made, saw that man was alone and he created woman who came from man to both complement and some people would say complete man. 
So there was humanity in perfect relationship with God before sin had entered the world, before the fall. But God still saw that something was missing and that it was not good. And so he created woman, woman, Eve, as she was named later. So you have good, 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 very good, not good, and then comes along woman. Then after that, Libby talked to us about intimacy and how we need um, various sort of things that are indicators of how we're doing in our relationships. Our need for intimacy can be indicated by how we're doing in these areas, self-acceptance, vulnerability, other-centeredness, touch and solitude. These are indicators of how easily we, we find it to, to be intimate with other people, to, to look for intimacy, to, to, to be vulnerable with other people, to allow them to be intimate with us, uh, both in a friendship sort of way, but also in a physical way. Uh, these are key features and key indicators of how healthy our relationships are. If we never want to be alone, that is not a good thing. Um, if we're not content with our own company, that's not a good thing. If we haven't accepted who we are, fundamentally, that isn't a good thing. And then the next week, James talked to us about circles of proximity and how that was used in the theatre, but also you can think about relationships. So you have um, different circles. So you have the intimate right in the middle, and then you have the personal, and then you have the social, and then you have the public. And, and James embarrassed me, so I'm going to embarrass James. So James, you can come uh, and stand where I am. Um, and I'm going to invite James into my um, intimate space. Okay, so I'm going to invite James into my intimate space. Come on, James, it's quite safe. This is James. He trusts me. And uh, steady. And um, it's, I mean, this is intimate space. Then there's a sort of a personal space, which is a bit over here. And then there's the sort of next one, which is the, the social space. And then there's the one right over here, which is the public space, which is how I actually feel about James. Um, to be as distant from me as possible. No, I don't. I like James a lot. Um, but that was a really helpful way that, that James showed us of thinking about our relationships. Whether the people around us are there in the intimate, the personal, the social, or the public. And it also explains why we get really close to somebody. A bit bashful now. <laughs> You're flattered. But why, when we get this close to somebody, whether it's a parent or a child, whether it's um, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, whether it's a, a husband or a wife, why, when that relationship ends, why it's painful? So many of us in this room will know what it's like to, to have a relationship end, whether it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. That's painful because we were there in the intimate space and now we're probably out in the public. We've gone a long way. We know something about somebody and we can see physically the wrench that's been caused when a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship breaks up, when somebody dies perhaps and there's bereavement. Or when a divorce happens in a marriage. That's why it's traumatic. That's why it's painful. Because we go from being intimate to being very, very distant. And yet there's a person over here that knows some really, really intimate things about us. And so it can feel odd. It can feel discombobulating. 
just feels disorientating. Because here is somebody that we have now pushed away perhaps, or they've chosen to leave us, as was my case in many of my girlfriend relationships, where without exception, they all broke up with me. Um, but now there's this distance. But still, they know something about us in a very intimate level. James, do go back to Alice, who, who is your real intimate friend, and she can <laughs> pray for healing. Um, but I found that a really helpful way of thinking about relationships and why different people are in different places in my life. Why, for example, it would be really odd. Facebook is great for getting in touch with people, but if I was to find the five, six, seven, eight girls who all broke up with me um, when I was younger and now start to reconnect with them on Facebook, that would seem really weird. And it would seem really weird if I started telling them at the same level of intimacy that I once had with them when we were going out, if I shared with them at that level, if I suddenly put them from the public space right back into the intimate space. That would seem very odd, and Kathy would kill me. <laughs> and then last Sunday, Rich spoke to us about friendships. We looked at the life of David and Jonathan, about how their relationship was incredibly special and how Jonathan loved David even as he loved himself. And Rich spoke to us about how often in friendships we wear masks, we pretend to be something other than we actually are, and then we also run what are called rackets. We, we, we try and, and shift the dynamics of different relationships and we play games with each other and sometimes with ourselves and, if we're honest, sometimes with God in the way that we relate both to God but also to our friends. And he told us how good, healthy friendships are based on mutual acceptance and trust. Now, I want you to bear all that in mind, and there's a reason why I've done that quick recap, because all that stuff has a bearing on how we think about marriage. All the stuff about friendship, all the stuff about the different circles of proximity, all the stuff about intimacy, all the stuff about good, 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 very good, and then not good, all that should inform how we then think about marriage. Marriage, Christians believe, is part of God's design for society. It's intended to enable friendship and fellowship and, as one person said, in some cases, fusion, to take place. It's not the perfect state for human beings. Sometimes, um, if you watch Bridget Jones, she refer, used to refer to the smug marrieds. Um, maybe that's been your experience. Sometimes church can be a place where people who are single, for differing reasons, often can feel excluded. Because church will often go on about marriage as the state that's the ideal state. Forgetting, of course, that the person who lived the most fulfilled human life that has ever existed on this planet was single. Jesus was never married. Now, okay, you can say, well, he was God become a human being, so he did have something on his side, but he was single. He was never married. And yet, often in the church, and often in the evangelical church, we give the impression that marriage is somehow a status above people who are single for a whole host of reasons. 
But marriage is seen as something that's important, as something that's foundational from Genesis 2, where the couple give themselves to each other in a committed relationship. And one of the things that we say to people on our marriage preparation course that we do twice a year, it's a great course uh, where we have people who, some of whom are engaged, some of whom are thinking about engaged, uh, some of whom get engaged during the marriage preparation course, not actually join the meal because that's a bit awkward, but um, they come on the course to find out whether they have the same thinking about marriage. But one of the things that we say to them is that marriage is not uh, a sort of contract relationship. It's something different. It's what the Bible calls a covenant relationship. That's different from a contract relationship. In a contract relationship, you enter into an understanding that you will do your part as long as the other person does theirs. So if you think of marriage as a contract, then you're basically saying, I will love you if. I will love you if you bring me breakfast in bed. I will love you if you do the washing up. I will love you if you take the bins out. I will love you if you remain faithful to me. But a covenant relationship, and in the Bible, the covenant relationship is always between God and people, that is quite different. A covenant relationship says something quite distinctive. It doesn't say, I will love you if. It simply says, I will love you. I will love you. I will love you, and I always will, and I will go on loving you, and I will go on loving you, and I will go on loving you, because God's love and the love, hopefully, in a marriage relationship shouldn't be dependent upon what each of the partners do. Now, obviously, to some degree, in practice, it is in a marriage relationship. And I know it, it can be really, really difficult. My, the guy who was my best man, um, his wife has, has left, them, left him twice in the last eight years, and, and now their marriage is, is at an end. But Jonathan has, has simply said that he refuses to stop loving Jill. He knows that they will never get back together again, but he says, I have made this covenant before God, and I will go on loving her. Even though she has chosen not to love me anymore in return, I will go on loving her. It demands incredible courage, incredible guts. I admire him immensely for making that statement, and I don't know how he goes through life day after day in the way that he does, but he does. Marriage is a covenant relationship. And if you like, the commitment that a couple make to each other, as expressed in the marriage vows, is, if you like, the protective casing around their relationship. And it's like a sort of dynamic circle. Um, intimacy uh, requires vulnerability. It's one of the things that um, Libby spoke to us a few weeks ago about. Intimacy requires vulnerability. Vulnerability requires trust. Trust all those things are then reflected in the sexual side of a relationship. Really good, healthy, committed sex comes from a place of vulnerability, trust, and intimacy, and commitment. 
You can have any number of one-night stands, but it's not actually intimacy. People often make the mistake of thinking they're having sex and they're having intimacy. The two are not the same thing. Intimacy and good sex requires trust and vulnerability and commitment. So all those things work together in a marriage. A marriage, if you like, in the physical side of the relationship, sex, should reflect the rest of the relationship. It's the physical expression of the commitment of the heart of the marriage relationships. And one of the things that we say on the marriage prep course is that the marriage vows and sex belong together, but not at the same time, because that's very embarrassing if you're a wedding guest. But just look at the marriage vows. The marriage vows, the words that the, the, the groom and the bride say to each other. I blank, take you blank, to be my husband or wife. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. To love and to cherish till death us do part, according to God's holy law. And this is my solemn vow. They are amazing words. It's often during the wedding rehearsal, the night before the wedding service, when the couple stand on this stage and, and they, they're facing each other, and we get them the night before to say these words to each other, often at that point they either do one of three things. They start to giggle hysterically, they start to cry, or actually they can't say these words. Because suddenly the reality of what they're going to do the next day dawned upon them. That was the case for me. The night before I got married to Kathy, we had a wedding rehearsal and we stood at the front of a church in Birmingham and we said these words, we practiced these words to each other. And it was only after all the months of preparation, not that I'd done much preparation, it has to be said, but it was only after those months of preparation, it was only standing in front, at that front of the church and saying these words that the reality of what I was about to enter into suddenly dawned on me. And I remember thinking, oh, stink. <laughs> this is real. I'm really looking forward to it. But the reality suddenly dawned upon me in a way that it hadn't up till then. And it's been my experience, I've taken, I guess, nearly 200 weddings over the years, and when we've had the rehearsal, time after time, it's been the rehearsal. When people say those words to each other, that they suddenly realize the reality of what they're committing themselves to. These marriage vows are about commitment and trust and vulnerability and intimacy. And sex, at its core, is the deepest form of communication between two human beings. It's the deepest level of our personalities. It joins two people together, not just physically, but emotionally, psychologically, and in a mysterious and almost mythical way, according to the Bible, it joins two people together spiritually. But where does this idea of a committed, mutual relationship come from? Well, where we get it from is the Bible. And Hazel's going to come and read from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33, as Paul lays out his guidelines for what's involved in a marriage. Hazel. 
So tonight's reading comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to 33, which is on page 1176 of the Church Bibles, which can be found at the back on the trolleys or at the front of the balcony. Instructions for, a Christian, for Christian households. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the he- husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his, lo- his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Thank you. Now, even as those words were read, I would guess there was a whole host of emotions and reactions going on in the room. Some of you are thinking, oh, blimey, he's going there, is he? Or others of you thought, "Mm, good luck with that one, Dave. What is actually being said? They're quite controversial verses, and different people will think different things about them. When Paul wrote those words, he was hundreds of miles away. He was in prison in the imperial city of Rome. Ephesus was one of his favourite cities and one of his favourite churches. He lived there for three years and planted that particular church. It was a church that meant an awful lot to him. It was a church that he prayed for with thanks and for their generosity and faith. And he prayed consistently that the church in Ephesus would know Jesus better. That was his prayer, and there are two or three prayers in the book of Ephesians where Paul tells the Ephesian Christians what he's praying for them. He prays that they might know the height and depth and breadth and and the width of, of the love of Christ. He prays that they might get to know Jesus better. And he prays in his opening prayer, if you've got a Bible, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 to 14, his opening prayer is one long sentence in the original Greek. It's 12 verses containing 202 Greek words with no pause for breath. Hazel, be grateful I didn't ask you to read that tonight. Now, what was Ephesus like? Ephesus was a spiritually vibrant city. Mystery religions jostled for position alongside the worship of the emperor. But the dominant figure in Ephesus was a woman called Diana. She was known as the world ruler. And in Greek, her title was Cosmocrator. Sounds like something out of the Marvel comics. But Cosmocrator means world ruler. That was perhaps why Paul described Jesus as Pantocrator, the all-powerful ruler, in Ephesians 1 and verse 22. 
But as Paul begins to conclude his letter to this church, and the first three chapters of the letter are Paul telling them what they should believe, the credenda, and verses chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the agenda, telling them what they should do, how they should behave. Paul encourages his letters with this simple verse. It's a bit similar to in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, you must be different to them. He tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, you must live different to the Gentiles. You must live differently to the teachers of the law. You must live differently to the Sadducees and the high priests. And in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, he says, do not be like them. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17, there's a similar sort of pivotal verse where Paul says to the Ephesian Christians, you must no longer live like the Gentiles do. Ephesians 4 verse 17, you must no longer live like the Gentiles do. And everything after that is Paul explaining to this early church in Ephesus what it means for them to live lives that are distinctively different to the society and culture that they find themselves in. And so if you look after that, he gives them some examples of how they should live differently. He gives them some examples, for example, as to how not to be greedy, how to speak the truth, to handle conflict well. He encourages them not to steal or to gossip. He pleads with them to get rid of all rage and bitterness, brawling and slander, to be kind and compassionate and to forgive one another. By contrast, and in order for them to live the life that God wants them to live, in chapter 5 he goes on to ask them, to urge them, to plead with them to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the Greek tense is a particular tense that we haven't got in English. It's called uh, the continuous aorist, I think. And it, it basically is saying, go on be being filled with the Spirit. So don't simply be filled with the Spirit as a one-off occasion, but go on be being filled with the Holy Spirit. May your being filled with the life of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the peace of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, may that life, may that spirit so fill you and fill you every single moment of every single day. Go on, be being filled with the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5 and verse 21. But then Paul does something quite different, quite unexpected. He gives them some marks of being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's quite a popular um, subject in the church in, in the West in, in 2016. If you'd run a seminar at, at Soul Survivor or Clan Gathering or New Wine or Spring Harvest on how you can know you're filled with the Spirit, that one would be packed out. But what's surprising is the markers that Paul gives to this church in Ephesus as to how they will know that they are filled with the Spirit. And the markers that he gives are not the markers that the church in the West, in the UK, in Scotland, look for in 2016. He says nothing about speaking in tongues. He says nothing about having words of prophecy. He says nothing about being able to form, perform miracles. He says nothing at all about claiming to have had mystical experiences. No, he chooses something else. Chapter 5 and verse 21, he says a mark of you knowing that you are filled with the Holy Spirit is 
submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. That's how you know you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, if you submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. It's a very unusual criteria to tell whether somebody is a spirit-filled Christian. Not one that's too popular in either charismatic or reformed church circles for different reasons today. At the end of another long Greek sentence, a mere 74 words this time in chapter 5, verses 18 to 23, he follows his four verbs with a simple exhortation. Speak, sing, make music, give thanks, and submit. Submit. Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. That's what Paul says will mark you out as Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Not tongues, not prophecy, not miracles, but mutual, and note that it is mutual, submission. Paul then follows usual practice in outlining three contexts in which he wanted submission to be seen. Usual in that what were called household codes were commonplace in Jewish, Greek and Roman society. These laid down how masters and slaves and parents and children and husbands and wives should behave. The difference was that in Jewish, Greek and Roman household codes, they simply outlined what the rights of the masters, the husbands and the fathers were. Paul does something very unusual and outlines what the responsibilities of the masters, the husbands and the fathers were. And he does something by being totally revolutionary and saying to the children and the slaves and the wives, you have rights and responsibilities as well. And he throws in this sort of curveball where masters and parents are told they have not just rights but also responsibilities. Children and slaves are told to obey. Interestingly, wives are not told to obey. And very sadly, these verses that have been used to excuse and um, justify male domination and female obedience and submission actually... Neither of those things are to be found in these verses. In verses 21 to 33, there are three verses written to the women, while the men get nine aimed at them. Three verses aimed at the women, nine aimed at the men. And yet, it's the tragedy that over the last 2,000 years, it's the three verses for the women that have been highlighted... And strangely, the men who've been doing most of the preaching have omitted to highlight the nine verses aimed at men. But the men, you see, do not get off lightly. What's pictured here in Paul's outlining of what a biblical marriage should, should look like is a relationship of reciprocal servanthood. Ephesians 5 verse 21. Submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. Wives to husbands is an example. In the original Greek, there's no second submit. That's been added in by 
editors with a particular agenda. It just says, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, wives to husbands. And husbands, love your wives. So it's reciprocal servanthood. Paul is saying to this church in Ephesus, I want you to be different. And I want you to show that you're different by the quality of your relationships. Slaves to masters, children to parents, but also husbands to wives. And the picture that he uses is one where the two halves of the marriage relationship are competing with each other. Where husbands and wives are competing with each other to say, no, 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 I'll make breakfast in bed. No, 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 let me. No, no, I'll do the ironing. No, 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 let me. No, no, I'll take the bins out. No, 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 let me. Now, hands up, my marriage is not like that. Kathy is far better at serving than I am. But that's the picture that Paul, the challenge that, that Paul is laying down to husbands and wives. It's not about the wife meekly submitting to a dominant male husband. It's about male and female, husband and wife, mutually submitting to each other and competing to serve one another. Secondly, it's a reflection, Paul says, of Jesus and the church. At one point he says, this is a profound mystery. But I'm speaking about Christ and the church. This is where men don't get let off lightly. The challenge that he gives to husbands is to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? Christ was willing to die for it. Christ laid down his life for the church. Christ loves the church. How does Christ love the church? By being willing to die for it. This is not about what we desire or deserve. It is about giving and hazarding all we have, as Shakespeare put it. And again, the tragedy is that in so many marriages, Christian marriages, these verses have been used to excuse and justify male domination and female subservience. When that was no... Just not what Paul originally had in mind. But what about this tricky verse where Paul says that the husband is the head of the wife just as Christ is the head of the church? Well, let's just think about it. The word head had several meanings in New Testament times just as it does today. And the word head actually, I think, means source rather than boss. Now, there were two words that Paul had a choice to make, to, to use in the, in the original Greek. One is the word exousia, that means authority. The other one is the word kephale, or head. And Paul deliberately chooses to use the word kephale rather than the word exousia, authority. So if he'd wanted to say the husband is the authority of the wife, he would have said that the man is the exousia of the wife. He doesn't say that. He says the husband is the kafali of the wife. Well, in our society, just as in Paul's, the word head has at least three simple and straightforward meanings. The first one 
is this. It's the skull, the cranium. It's where the brain resides. When a child complains that their head hurts, they're usually referring to their cranium. Secondly, the head can refer to a person in authority. For example, the head of a school or the head of state, such as the queen or a president. But thirdly, and less frequently, the head can refer to the source of something, as in the head of a river. It's where something begins, where the tide turns and where the river's water comes from. Now, as I say, Christians will disagree about what is actually meant by the word head. Some people will say it means boss, as in head of state. Not many people think it's cranium. But increasingly, many people are saying, well, surely source makes sense. That's what Genesis 2 says. And let's look at the context that Paul was writing into. There were several myths prevalent in Ephesus at the time. Ephesus, it was suggested, had been founded by a tribe of large Amazonian-type women who claimed their descent, their genealogy, from their mothers and treated men as slaves. And some of the Ephesian myths went even further and claimed that the God of Genesis, the God that Jews and Christians believed in, was himself a creation of a supreme female being known as Authentia. So maybe what Paul is doing is saying, I want you to be countercultural, Ephesian Christian women, not by being the dominant ones, not by being the bossy ones, not by being the superior ones, because that was the norm in Ephesus, because women ruled the roost in Ephesus. And he's saying, I want you to be different by recognizing that God made you and you came from Adam, the man, and that man is the source of woman, not the authority. And the context where he's saying, I want you to be different, is that I want your relationships in the home and in the workplace to be characterized by something that is unusual, something that the world, the ancient world, just thought was a weakness, mutual submission. So marriage is a relationship of mutual servanthood, a relationship that mirrors that of Christ and the church, and a relationship that is a covenant, not a coalition or a contract, where no one has the casting vote. Sometimes people who are thinking about getting married uh, will come and have a chat with Kathy and myself, and, and they'll say, yeah, but what happens in your relationship where you don't agree? Who has the casting vote? And Kathy looks at me and I look at Kathy and think, well, no one has the casting vote. Because if it gets to that situation where one of you has to have the casting vote, you probably need to talk some more. You probably need to chat things through. The idea that somehow I would stand up and say, well, I'm the head of the house, and I will just say this is how it's going to be. Frankly, if you know anything about me and Kathy, that's not going to happen. But it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be healthy. It would just feel odd. Marriage is where each partner commits to love, honour and serve each other. 
to love each other unconditionally, hopefully until the end of their lives. And it's a picture of what in the Old Testament is the, the Hebrew word hesath. It means God's unconditional, unreserved, faithful, endless, and eternal love. That covenant love. Not I will love you if. I will love you if you do your part. But I simply love you. And I will go on loving you. And I will keep on loving you. And I will always forgive you. And I will always be kind. And I will always be generous. And I will always be compassionate. No matter what you do to me. Because that is the way in which a marriage love reflects God's love. Now I know it's not easy. I've been married 28 years. It needs working on every single day. And I'm conscious of the ways, and Kathy is more conscious of the ways in which I fail. That's the reality of life. But it's an incredibly beautiful and powerful picture of how God intended some of us to live. That somehow we might mirror the relationship between God and the church. And that the marriage relationship wouldn't be an exclusive thing, but will be one where other people were welcome. Where family life was not just about sort of getting up the, the, the walls around your family and protecting this nuclear family with 2.4 children, a golden Labrador and a Volvo, but actually where it's an extended family where homes are open to everybody and there's hospitality and there's, there's love and there's generosity and kindness and compassion open to anybody. That's the biblical model of a marriage and a family. But it's where we have this incredibly powerful picture in the end of, of how God loves human beings. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, famous German church leader who opposed Hitler and tragically lost his life a few months before the end of the Second World, was imprisoned under the Nazi regime. Because he was in prison, he couldn't conduct the wedding service of his niece. Somehow he managed to smuggle out a wedding sermon that was read out at her wedding. And this was part of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. The time for choosing for both of you is over. Both of you have now made your choice. Marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power. For it is God's holy ordinance through which he wills to perpetuate the human race until the end of time. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world. But in your marriage, you are a link in the chain of the generations. In your love, you see only the heaven of your happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. If you're single and used to be married or long to be married, that is as much a challenge for you as it is for those of us in this room this evening who are married. That our relationship should be characterized by mutual submission, by self-giving, generous, faithful, grace-filled, compassionate love. I don't know about you, but as I think about my friendships, as I think about my relationships, as I think about my relationship with God, 
And as I think about my marriage, that means that I need to come afresh to God and ask for his help and ask for his healing. Libby's going to lead us as we respond.